Please open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 13. And if you have an insert, you can follow along with the notes. It's, it's funny how God's providence works. Um, we are today focusing on the debt of love on Valentine's Day weekend in the middle of tax season. And so, love and debt, um, both in the forefront of our minds and in the forefront of this, of this text. And this is a debt that isn't going to show up on your credit report, um, but it's really the only debt that matters. So let's look at Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Lord God, as we turn our attention to your word, especially this pinnacle point, that which fulfills your law, love. Lord, help us to grasp both the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of your love for us and let that growing understanding and deepening awe and wonder fuel us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to, to pay the debt of love and to keep paying. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul returns in, in Romans, um, or it seems he returns, again, to the topic of love that he's introduced earlier. If you remember, we are now in the final section of the book of Romans, the practical section, the instructive section, or the way I like to think about it, the first 11 chapters give us truth. They're indicative statements. This is what is. And now, starting in chapter 12, this is what you must do. This is the imperatives common theme for the way Paul writes. Indicatives followed by imperatives. And the verse that sets this out, we've looked at repeatedly, but we will look at it again. If you turn back to chapter 12, the transition that frames these final chapters of Romans is in verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, which basically references the entire previous 11 chapters. Based on what we've just heard, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so... Four weeks ago, we started by looking at love working itself out in the local church, using our gifts to serve one another, using our gifts to love one another. Take a look at verse 9 of chapter 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then he goes on to give specific ways that we are to love each other in that way. And then the topic shifts to how to love our enemies, 
How do we respond not to those in the church, but to those in the world around us, especially when they would persecute us, when they would mistreat us? And again, we're to love them. We're to bless those who curse us. We are to repay kindness to those who would mistreat us. And we'd make room for God to fight. And then, it would seem like a sudden shift in topic, he introduces government in chapter 13. But it's, it's clear that this, that wasn't just a strange, well, I gotta put it somewhere, so I'll put it there type of thing. It fits in and it links. Because now that we're back dealing with love, it, it links together. Two big links. The first is the word owing. If you look at 13.7, the final practical advice in dealing with the government is to pay back what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one nothing. So Paul is linking these thoughts. But the other thing to think about is that as, as hard as it is for us to hear what Paul has to say about government, it's a form of love. Remember, go back to chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So showing honor in the body is a form of love. It's a demonstration of love. Well, you've probably never thought of it this way, but honoring your officials, honoring those who govern us, is an expression of love. We've never left the topic of love. The progression goes something like this. Love the church, love the world, love those who persecute you, love those who rule over you. And so we never left the topic of love. Paul is just now bringing it all together, summarizing it. And he's setting up for what's coming. In chapter 14, which we'll get to in a few weeks, in verse 15, he's going to rebuke Christians who are fighting over preferential issues, fighting over issues of conscience, and tell them that they are no longer walking in love. Love is the predominant theme of this entire section, these final chapters of Romans. But he's going to bring it together here in these few verses to help us just understand just how important this is. So that's how this text fits into the context, the debt of love. We're going to look at it in three points by asking a number of questions. So let's take a look at the debt of love, verse 8. And the first question that comes to mind is this. Owe nothing to anyone? I mean, is, is Paul here forbidding debt of any sort? And, and if he is, probably a good many of us with car payments and mortgages are in trouble. Um, but before we just shrug that off, um, there have been Christians in church history who took this to mean exactly that. Probably most notably, George Mueller, who founded all those orphanages in England. He refused to have any lines of credit. He refused to ever go into debt, just praying for his needs. Um, and the Lord blessed that. I think the Lord blessed that in spite of the fact that I don't think Mueller got this passage right, but the Lord blessed and honored that. But it's clear that that is not a forbidding of all debt, because he's just said in verse 7, we're in debt to certain people with certain things. Sometimes it's a monetary debt in regards to taxes. Sometimes it's a debt of respect and honor. But Paul is not saying, owe no one anything. Rather, leave no debt outstanding, which is what I think some of our translations say. The point being, when something is owed, pay. Don't get behind on your mortgage. Don't get behind on your car payments. Um, except there's one debt you'll never be able to pay up on. There's one debt, no matter how many payments you make to it, you'll still owe. 
And that's the debt of love. That's the debt of love. Also in, in Matthew 5, 42, Jesus tells us to lend to those who would borrow from us. So if, if, if being in debt, be, being in financial obligation were a sin, it's hard to see how Jesus would instruct us to lend to those who would borrow from us. Why not just say, we'll just give to them? So that's, just get that out of the way so that we don't get confused with that. But that's not really the main point. Um, but that brings up a question which I think is interesting and I, and I wonder how many of us have thought about how can love be a debt? And how do we get in this debt? I mean, how can love be a debt? It seems, at least in my thinking, like those sometimes are cross-purposes. Um, I mean, would you think of it as love if you were paying someone to be kind to you? So I, I give Greg $10 and Greg says really nice things about me for the rest of the day. How many of you would view that as love? Not many, right? I mean, Jesus puts it this way in Luke 14, verses 12 to 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you have been repaid at the resurrection of the just. So this notion of love as a debt can be challenging to wrap our heads around. And, and, and how is it that I got into this debt? If I'm to love other people, how did I get indebted to you? I think it's worth chewing on. And, and it's a difficult thing to fathom. I think there's two ways to think about this as a debt. There's a wrong way and there's a right way. And it's crucial we make the distinction. Because Paul's going to bring up the contrast between the law of Moses in the next few verses and this law of love. And there is an indebtedness in both cases, but it's significantly different. It's significantly different. I mean, I just want you to imagine somebody who's, who's calculating this. And, okay, I got a, a, a love debt to Dave. Okay, I'll do something for Dave today. Check, I made a payment for that. Okay, I don't want to get behind on my payments, so I've got to go over here, and I've got to do something for James. Check. And there's going around, and they're keeping tally, and yes, I know I'll never pay God back, but hopefully I'll make some progress in my debt to God. You know, and then that starts to sound really self-righteous when we start thinking, sure, I'll still be in debt to God, but I won't be as much in debt to God as Zach will be, because I'll have made more payments. That's pretty close to blasphemy. I mean, if we're paying back this debt in some sense of trying to repay God, some scenario where God is the beneficiary, where he's benefiting from our acts of love, you kind of got the gospel backwards. No, we're the, we're the beneficiaries. We receive the blessings, and he receives the glory. The giver gets the glory. Um, is an expression that I picked up from John Piper, that if we're paying back this love debt, in some sense, to try to repay God, we got it all wrong. We're actually operating a lot like the Pharisees who are trying to keep the law. But there's another way that you can be in debt that I think does honor God, that Paul's dealing with here. And it's probably best illustrated, and this is great because it's Valentine's Day weekend, and I'm directly stealing this illustration from John Piper. Let's just be honest about that up front. But I want you to imagine, men, that you're good husbands, you're good doing what you're supposed to do, and so this Valentine's Day, you show up at home with a dozen red roses at the door, and you knock on the door, and I just want you to imagine me knocking on the door, I come home early from work, and there's Serena at the door, and I say, hey Serena, these are for you. 
And she said, oh, Jeremy, you shouldn't have done it. Why'd you bring them? Oh, why'd you do this? And I said, well, I, I noticed it was Valentine's Day and I checked the rules. And as a husband, pretty sure as a husband, I, I checked online. This was, this, I went to Wikipedia, so it's valid. And, and, I, and I found out that it is required of husbands to show affection to their wives, and in particular on Valentine's Day, I do my duty, I keep the rules, I made some promises to you a few years back, and so here I am, fulfilling my obligation, here are your flowers. Now, how many of you think that sounds like love? And yet, I'm obligated to love my wife. It's not like I'm just free from doing that. There's an indebtedness to my wife to love her that doesn't come down to particular applications of love. Um, another way of thinking about this obligation is this. We're obligated to love our brother, to love each other, and yet there's a sort of liberty and a freedom. James calls it the law of liberty. And let me give you an illustration of what I mean. If, if we're driving along, if we're walking through the park and there's somebody at a park bench sitting reading the newspaper and I, I'm walking with, I'll say, Greg. I say, hey, Greg, you see that guy over there? He says, yes. I said, he's your neighbor, yes? He says, yes. So you are obligated to love him, yes. Do you think it would be loving to give that guy all the money in your wallet? Greg says, I suppose, sure. I said, well, then why don't you, you must go do it. You must go give him, we've just established you're in debt to him with love. We've established that giving him all your money would be love. You must go do it. <laughs> uh, Greg has the widow's might to give the man on the bench. And that would, be, that would be a very legalistic view of love. There's a liberty, there's a freedom, there's a voluntarism. It has to well up voluntarily from within us. And yet we're not free to not love, yet it's not that type of ought. You know, if, if, if Serena says, um, ask for a kiss goodnight, and I say, do I have to? Well, after I, after I wake up from being knocked, no. The answer is yes, but not that type of have to, Right? Husbands need to love their wives. Husbands need to give their wives a kiss goodnight if they want, but it's not that type of have to. So we're in debt to love, but it's a different type of debt than the debt we were to the law. Where the law could come along and point per point, say, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? No, bad dog. You know, and, and the debt of love is a sort of overflowingness. We've been bought. We've been purchased. We've been crucified with Christ, and we've been given new life. And God is set to conform us to the image of his son. And so God wants us to be what he has declared us to be, to be what we are, to follow the example of our older brother, to use the language of Romans 8. And so there should be this sense of obligation, this sense of desire, this sense of I must, I need to love others. And yet the doing of it, there's a liberty, there's a freedom, there's a, there's a volunteerism, that this has to come up and, and come up from within. So that's the debt that we have. The next question is, to whom do we owe this debt? To whom do we owe this debt? Paul uses three terms in this passage. He talks about one another, which in, in verse 8 would suggest really only Christians, but he broadens it out very quickly. And at the end of uh, verse 8, he talks about loving another, then we're talking about loving your neighbor by the end of this passage. But there's a phrase he uses here in, in uh, verse 8 that, that I find very interesting. Literally, and this is where sometimes being able to study in Greek can be helpful. It's the one who loves the other. Ton heteron. We've got homosexual, same, 
right? Heterosexual other. It's the other, the one who is not like you. And it's not an other, but the other. One of my commentators had this to say about it. It means not just an other or someone other than ourselves, but the other. That is the one who at a particular moment confronts us as neighbor in the New Testament sense. And all those who from time to time present to us God's claim for service. A man has not fulfilled the law by the mere fact that he loves an other, some one other than himself. Most men surely do this, at least at some time in their lives. But rather, we are called to love the other, the one who is not like us, the one we encounter. And you think about it, who is more other to God than you or me? The, the, the distance of kind, the distance of holiness, the distance of value of God, and yet God loved the one who was not him. He loved us. We're called to love the other. It, you can find the other anywhere you look, anywhere you encounter people, you're encountering someone who is not you. And we're called to love the other when we encounter them, when we encounter them. It's a wonderful picture, the other, the one who is not us. And the next question that raises then is how does love then, and how does this type of love fulfill the law? And this notion of fulfilling the law comes up three times. In verse 8, he says they fulfill the law. In verse 9, it's summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in verse 10, Love is the fulfilling of the law. And we'll look at all three of those. This first one's a little different. The English makes the relationship of loving and fulfilling the law ambiguous. We're not sure which one's causing which. Um, in the original language, it's a little more precise. A literal reading of this phrase is, the one who is continuously loving is in a state of having already fulfilled the law. And what it's saying is this. A person whose life is characterized by this type of love, ongoing, repeatedly, consistently, already has fulfilled the law. It's not that doing this, it's not that loving your neighbor on a consistent basis helps you to somehow attain law fulfillment. So you can pat yourself on the back, I did it, I have fulfilled the law. Rather, it's the evidence, it's the outworking, it's the works that accompany one who has already had the law fulfilled in them. Tur turn back to Romans 8. If you, if you think I'm making this overly complicated, it's, it's not. It's, it's something Paul's already taught in, in Romans 8, chapter 4, explaining to us how the new covenant works and how it differs from the Mosaic covenant. See, we don't do things to keep the law and thus become righteous. According to Romans 8, we'll read verses 3 and 4. The law is kept in us already by Christ, and that becomes the basis of our holy lives. Listen to Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us not by us, in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you're a Christian, if you're born again, if you're in Christ, the law is already fulfilled in you. 
You don't go fulfill the law. It is fulfilled in you because Christ is in you. Because you're in Christ. Because he fulfilled the law for you. Because he is your righteousness. Because he is the one who was baptized by John the Baptist to fulfill all righteousness. If you're a Christian, the law is already fulfilled in you. And so what he's saying just a few chapters later is one who is loving his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The law in them is fulfilled. This is how you can tell born-again new creation beings. They're loving the other consistently. This is the fruit of the salvation tree. This is the evidence of the new birth. The one who is loving another has fulfilled the law. This love that we're expressing is according to Romans 5 5 is the evidence of God's love already poured out in our hearts. See, God poured love into us. God took our heart of stone out and gave us a heart of flesh. God breathed life into us. And then we, as new creations, begin to love others. And that's the proof, that's the, that's the unmistakable stamp of the new birth, is ones who are loving each other. So Paul says... Leave no debt remain outstanding except this continued, ongoing necessity to love each other. And the one who's doing that, the one who is living this out, is one who has the law fulfilled in them in Christ. And that's a wonderful truth that we can tell each other. But didn't Jesus say this? By this the world will know that you are mine, that you love one another. That you love one another. And this notion of love and its relationship to the law can get tricky at times. And we'll see that now as we move into the notion of love and the law. Point two. Most of us probably don't think of love and law as these complementary, overlapping things. If we've assimilated anything from our culture, it's that love and law are at odds with each other. So the first question then is, is how do love and law relate? Because Paul tells us, it seems strange, I mean, I want you to see the, the dissonance here. Let no debt remain outstanding except to love one another. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. And then he starts quoting from the Ten Commandments. I don't know the last time you were thinking, man, I really need to love my wife better. I need to love my neighbor better. Better go to the Ten Commandments. That's where Paul goes. And so how, we got to wrestle with how does this law of love and how do the commandments relate to one another? Our culture wants to think that they're absolutely at odds. So you either have loving relationships or you have rules, law, and structure. You either have unconditional love or you have judgmentalism and condemnation. Because where there's law, there must be penalty for law-breaking. Law brings with it all those concepts. And so... How do these things relate to each other? That's a very good question. A help for this comes from a few weeks earlier, back in chapter 10. In chapter 10, verse 4, we read this. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the goal. Christ is the telos. Christ is that to which the law was pointing for everyone who believes. You see, the law was about getting people to love each other in practical, real ways. That's why you had to build a, a parapet around the top of your flat roof so your neighbor didn't fall off and hurt himself. It's an act of love. That's why Jesus can say, the one who's 
loving his neighbor as himself has fulfilled the law. That's what the law was getting to. The law of Christ is that we love each other. And, and, and it's, the New Testament wrestles with this dynamic. I mean, listen to this in, in 1 John 2, 7 to 10. How John wrestles with this concept of love and law. Beloved, I am writing no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing you, which is true in him and you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. There is no cause of stumbling in him. Do you see how John's wrestling with, it's an old commandment, but it's a new commandment, but it's an old commandment. It's what the law was getting at. That we love one another. Our Lord in John 13, 34, tells his disciples in the upper room, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And yet, that surely can't be new if you've read your Old Testament. But it is new. And the freedom that we have to live it out in the new covenant in the spirit as people who are already justified is new. So love and law are not at odds. They work together. They're not the same thing, this law of love and the law. Here, here's a helpful way to think about it. We wouldn't know what love is if the law didn't help direct us somewhat. When we were immature, when we were young, Paul says, the law came as a tutor to hold us and teach us until faith came. Um, or, or another way of thinking about it is this. We will never, short of glory, truly love the other as we should. This means that it would be premature to claim that love replaces the law for the Christian, as if the only commandment we ever needed to worry about was the command of love. For as long as our love remains incomplete, we may very well require other commandments, both to chastise and to guide us. Let me see if I can help explain what I'm saying with that quote. One of the things that's important for us in our home is to train and teach Abner to love and protect his little sister. And so it's our goal that Abner would grow up into a brother who loves and protects his sister. And to that end, we have some laws. In fact, as Abner demonstrates new activities, we create new laws. So some of the laws would include, but not be limited to, that Abner is not allowed to poke Sophie in the face. Abner is not allowed, this is the newest one, to jump on her head. <laughs> Abner is not allowed to take an age-appropriate toy away from her. However, if she has something dangerous or something he knows she's not to touch, he may take it from her saying thank you or he may call us. These are some of the laws that Abner has with an end towards him loving his sister. Now, I want you to imagine this. Abner grows up, he gets older, he gets older. He's 10 or 12. And hopefully by that point, Abner will have a, his head wrapped around what loving his sister looks like. And he won't have a checklist of rules. He's freed from those rules. Are we still telling him, now Abner, remember the rule, you're not allowed to jump on her head? No. Is Abner suddenly now free to jump on his sister's head? I'm free from these rules. No, because he needs to love her. And hopefully at some point, this maturing grasping of love takes hold so that he can lay the rule book aside, not so he can now suddenly break the rules, because he doesn't need them. Because the law is written on our hearts. And we'll never get to the point where we don't need scripture, but the analogy holds to some degree. We wouldn't know what love is intuitively. 
Our culture messes it up constantly. And the scripture helps refocus us what love is. And yet, Paul can say in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. See, if you're walking in the Spirit, you don't need to consult a rule book about what you're doing. If the fruit that you're bearing out are these things, there's no law. There's a freedom in Christ, which is why James can refer to this as the law of liberty, the freeing law. It's a freeing law. And, and that sort of helps us understand it, because how many of us would naturally think that it's a loving thing to deal with sin in others? The Bible says it's a loving thing. How many of us would naturally think it's a loving thing to speak hard truth to someone? How many of us would naturally think it's a loving thing to withhold something someone wants for their good? We do that all the time with our children. So the scripture informs us what love is. Um, Cranfield writes this. We are all equally in need of particular commandments into which the law breaks down our general obligation of love to save us from resting content with vague and often hypocritical sentiments, which in ourselves we are all too prone to mistake for Christian love. And this is a big danger in the church. People grasping this truth, sort of the all-you-need-is-love mantra, never bother to have a biblically informed understanding of love, and, and so they just close their Bibles, close their minds, and they just run around loving each other in sort of vague, fluffy, generalized ways. And that's not what Paul's saying here. And yet at the same time, once you grasp, once we grasp true, authentic, biblical love, we're no longer operating on a checklist. Let me give you an example. When's the last time you were angry at someone and thought, oh, wait a second, there's a rule, I can't kill them. <laughs> now the rule is there in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. But if that's the way you live your life, well, if that's the way you live your life, Paul says that, that doesn't really look like there's a new heart and a new spirit and the law is fulfilled in you. Rather, it should be, I need to love this person. Of course I can't do them any harm. Of course I can't do them any harm. Which brings us then, naturally enough, into our next question. What then is the true nature of authentic love? Well, Paul quotes for us a book that I'm sure we go to all the time for instruction on love, Leviticus. I know I do. No, no, but turn with me to Leviticus 19 to see the context of this. Our culture is simultaneously obsessed with love and does nothing but twist love and warp its definition. If you watch Disney movies, if you watch romantic comedies, you'll get all sorts of instruction about what love is. And yet, this greatest commandment that all the law and the prophets hang on, the golden rule when found in Leviticus 19, is a lot more mundane, and it also makes you harder and more wondrous and glorious than anything Disney has put out. Leviticus 19, and let's read the verse before as well, verse 17 to 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance 
or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Notice how those themes of vengeance show up, and they just showed up in Romans 12, 13 as well, and 12 at the end of 12 as well. What, what's, what's this in Leviticus 19? What does loving your neighbor as yourself involve? It involves not gossiping. It involves not taking revenge. It involves not bearing a grudge. And it involves going and talking to someone who's offended you. Pretty mundane stuff. But I submit that's some of the hardest stuff to do in the Christian life. And what we can so easily do is give ourselves passes for that. It's just, I know I shouldn't say this, but... I know I should go talk to them, but... And then just sort of build up these warm, fuzzy pictures of love that just have to do with puppies and Cupid and arrows and stuff, and somehow think we're loving when the most fundamental acts of love have to do with interpersonal relationships. We love your neighbor enough to not be mad at them and go talk to them. We love your neighbor enough to not gossip about him. We love your neighbor enough to forgive him. And yet where you see that happening in a community, you see peace, you see harmony, you see love, you see something amazing. But it's far too easy to have these grand, big visions of love for the whole world and yet be a jerk to the people right in front of you. And so the commandments help inform us of what love is. I mean, think about it. You've probably never thought of, do not lie, do not steal, do not covet, do not commit adultery, as informing us and what love is, but how many adulteries have taken place specifically under the justification of love? It happens all the time. We're in love. No, you're not. Not if, that's what, not if that's what it's leading you to do. If the fruit of your love is adultery, it's not love. That, that's what Paul says right here. We need these instructions to help us understand what love is. If the fruit of your action is a lie, it's not love, that's the foundation of it. And yet sometimes we'll lie to people. We want them to feel good about themselves. We, wanna, we don't want to create problems, so we'll just sort of tell some white lies. Nope, that's not love. Coveting, love does not seek its own. And so we're informed of what love really is. If you, if you want a simple definition of love, the best one I could come up with is love is a passionate commitment to your neighbor's highest good and joy in Christ. Love is a passionate commitment to your neighbor's highest good and joy in Christ. And the law helps us understand what love is. The law depicts for us what love is and what it isn't. And we need God's law to help inform us of what love is, what it means to really love. Because our culture has got such a warped view of it. I mean, you can justify just about any action in our culture today as long as it's based in love. And yet we know, here we see, that love is consistent with God's law. In fact, God's law perfectly lived is a life of love. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, and Jesus loved perfectly. And so we start to grasp the true nature of love is is to live out these commandments. Not because we're going to a checklist, but because it's just flowing out of our hearts, flowing out of our desires, flowing out of our joy to love one another, to love the other as we encounter them. 
Quickly, I just want to look at one other question here. A lot of people recently, and it turns out actually historically, this has cropped up periodically, have used this command in Leviticus 19 to justify teachings that sound something like this, that basically the reason we're having a hard time loving other people is we don't love ourselves. And they, they will use Leviticus 19, 18, to justify that. I'm to love my neighbor as myself. If I'm having a hard time loving my neighbor, then clearly it's because I don't love myself enough. And I won't belabor this point too much because we've already seen in chapter 12 we're not to think too highly of ourselves. But this teaching shows up all over the place in people that I would otherwise respect. This will crop up. And so I just want to take a moment and just correct that. No, the Bible assumes we love ourselves plenty. That's why back in chapter 12, Paul doesn't say, be careful that you don't think enough of yourselves. Rather, he says in verse 3, everyone among you is not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. We talked a couple weeks ago about um, how in push comes to shove, when it comes to getting the good parking space, we all love ourselves plenty. We all love ourselves plenty. In fact, Blaise Pascal said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. They will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. All of us are seeking our joy. We may be ignorant of where to find it, we may have some wrong ideas about what will bring us joy, but all of us, without exception, act on the principle of self-love. I want my joy. I want to be happy. I want what I want. And so for the blanks here, my love for myself is my desire and commitment for my joy and my own ends. My love for myself is my desire and commitment for my joy my own ends. Just, just plug the commandments Paul's just quoted back into this. Do you want people to lie to you? No. So don't lie to other people. Do you want people to commit adultery with your spouse? No. So you better not do that. Do you want people to steal from you? No. It's all about just my desire to not have these bad things happen to me. It's not about how I feel about myself. No one wants their property stolen. Nobody wants people to lie to them. Well, that's not true. I forgot about women. <laughs> that's a bad joke. I'm sorry. Um, no one wants anyone to lie to them. No one does. And that's the way we're to love ourselves and to love our neighbor. There's nothing wrong in not wanting people to lie to you. The Bible assumes that we do. The Bible assumes that we do. And that's what we're called to do to other people, to love them in that way. I try to protect myself from people robbing me. I try to protect myself from people lying to me. And I should take interest in others in the same way. Which finally brings us to the point of love and your neighbor. Love and your neighbor. It's interesting that Paul phrases this in a negative command. We're talking about love, and yet everything we've seen so far is just negative, negative, negative. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And he ends it by saying, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. I think you could put it in a more positive way, but I think he's just keeping in step with the Ten Commandments, which are all, the second half are all negative. Do not steal, do not covet, do not commit adultery, do not do wrong to your neighbor. 
You're not too wrong to your neighbor. Which brings up the question, who is my neighbor? Well, somebody asked Jesus that question. If you'll turn your Bible to Luke's gospel, we'll close by taking a look at that. Who is my neighbor? Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down to Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came down to where he was and when he saw him he had Compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go. And do likewise. This is, this is the illustration. This is the best example I could think of of what it means to choose to see the other in someone else, someone not like you. Historically, the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. They're the half-breeds left behind after the ten northern tribes were taken away. They intermarried with the pagans around them, and they came up with their own truncated twisted version of Judaism. The Jews would go out of their way, walking hundreds of extra miles, not to even walk on the dust of Samaria. And here's this man in dire need. And what we see here is the choice to love. The choice that the Samaritan had to see someone in need, to view them as his neighbor, and to love them. That's who your neighbor is. It's where you find him. It's where you find them. You're going to be encountering this next week, this next month, today, people who need things, people who need encouragement, people who need finances, people who need instruction, maybe some people who need rebuke. But everyone around you will be in need. And you have the words of life. You have God's truth. And it's your choice when you look in the face your brother and sister, whether you're going to choose to see the other in them, whether you're going to choose to love them, and whether you're going to choose to live out the law, to live out what was done for you by Jesus. The blanks at the bottom. Your neighbor is whoever you choose to look upon in love. And when you choose to see others as your neighbor, you will be living out the fullness of the law. 
Remember, against this, there's no law, Paul says in Galatians. It's just, the cho- it's got to be active. We've got to choose to view our neighbor, to view the person we encounter, and it's the people in front of you. It's, it's easy to have warm, fuzzy feelings for people you'll never see countries away. I encourage you, feel for them, help them if you can. But don't miss the fact that your neighbor is fundamentally the other person that you meet, that you, your eyes meet, you see them, they're in front of you. God has placed them in your life for you to be able to do them good. And it's not a law that I can follow you around in the supermarket and say, oh, but you missed somebody, you missed a neighbor, you missed a neighbor. That's not the way this law works. And yet it's not optional. It's not something you can just choose to do. It's the type of thing that God's love overflowing in our hearts God's love poured out in us and just bubbling up and overflowing. It's the type of thing, as we walk in the Spirit, we will do naturally. It's the type of thing our Lord did for us. Loving the unlovely, loving the other, giving of himself, supplying what we needed and could never pay and will never be able to repay. This is the debt that we have to each other and to all those around us. It's a debt we'll never, never, and, and don't even try to repay it. But it's the debt that we are all having, the debt to love each other as Christ loved us. Let's pray. Lord God, your love for us awes us. It astounds us. It is breathtaking that you would look down on your enemies, those in rebellion against you, those who lift up your name as a curse, that you sent your son and he humbled himself he lived among us and was abused and mistreated and then he willingly died for us on a tree a shameful death all for his enemies all for the other all for the ones who were not like him and Lord you have now redeemed us and you have bought us and for those of us who have put our trust and faith in you we are new creatures being conformed to the image of your son and so it's only natural, it's only right, it's only fitting that we would love others with that love. Would help us to do it joyfully, not under compulsion, sincerely, gladly, believing that it's better to give than to receive. Would help us to choose actively to, to love the ones who are not like us, not just our friends, not just the ones who will pay us back with kindness, but the ones who we may never see again, the ones whom have no ability to repay us. Doing it because it's what you did for us, because it's our joy, it's our delight to spread the love of God to all men. Lord God, help us to be mindful to do this in the coming weeks, coming months, the rest of our life. Help us to fulfill the law and show that the law is fulfilled in us by your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.